1: Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine's Big Interview with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Today we're talking to a remarkable 26-year-old Belgian journalist called Arno Gedecker. He was born and raised in Brussels, the city that partially shaped him to who he is today and where he still lives. His work is mostly published in Dutch, but he's also fluent in English and has notions of Spanish and most interestingly, of course, for our interview, he's been reporting from Ukraine for more than a year and was recently caught up in the deadly missile strike in Kramatorsk. Arno, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your reporting from Ukraine? When did you first go to the country and what have you seen since then?
2: Absolutely. So my first time in Ukraine was in February 2020. 20- So before the war, I was here for about three weeks Um, and then the war, well, the invasion of Ukraine started and I stayed maybe one week covering what was happening. But after that, decided to leave to Poland because obviously I'm still young and it's the first proper war uh, that that I experienced. Um, So I went back to Belgium and came soon after that around in, in April. And since that time i 've spent maybe over a year in Ukraine covering almost every front line and uh, every important major event in the country, so from the north to the east uh, to the south um, everywhere oh no you you 're um, a young man
0: uh, you 're only you 're still in your twenties you 're a european you 're a Belgian, so you belong to a very different generation from me and indeed a different generation from Saul. I'm very interested in hearing your perspective on this conflict coming from someone who's got their whole future ahead of them and from a generation which grew up in peace, grew up with the idea of the European ideal, etc. What does this war tell you about the world you're you're looking
2: into? Well, but this is a very good question because actually the reason why I'm here here. Is because the soldiers and the people fighting here to survive, most of them are just like me, or they were just like me before the invasion. So all these military people, all these soldiers that I meet at the front, often they're just my age, 27, 28, 25 years old. And they tell me every time, one year ago, I was working abroad in another country. I was doing different stuff. I was maybe... In Denmark, in France, I was an actor, I was an architect, and I had zero combat experience. And now those people are fighting at the front. So I feel very close to those people because a year ago, I was also obviously, I had no war experience, just as these people here. So it's maybe strange, but I feel very comfortable with these people because somehow I learned my this job just like they did. And I feel very uh, close to their experience um, because, I, obviously, I go to the front lines with them, and we somehow have the same experience as we started from scratch. And for me, as a as a human being, it's it's very inspiring and somehow surreal also to to be able to experience this as a as a foreign journalist. And I'm absolutely happy to be able to tell those stories to the people in Belgium.
1: Anna, you're obviously reporting from the Ukrainian perspective, as indeed most of the Western journalists are. Has it been difficult for you to get a kind of sense of what's going on the other side? I mean, we've had this completely mad scenario over the last couple of weeks with the Wagner mutiny and the fact that Prigozhin is apparently now back on the loose, so to speak, in, in uh, Russia. He, you know, There's even a report that he's gone to recover his firearms, which the FSB took from his apartment in St. Petersburg. I mean, how do you make sense of what's happening on the Russian side?
2: Well, when the attack on Kramatorsk on the, on the restaurant happens at the end of June, I made some images, some footage that showed also Ukrainian military being wounded in that attack and those images that i posted on twitter and on instagram they were largely used by russians to um, to say that actually it was a military target because look at those images you can see ukrainian soldiers looking at my footage so what happened after that is that i was flooded by russian uh, bots but also just Russian citizens coming into my DMs on Instagram and on Twitter, insulting me, treating me of mercenary. And, well, my first reaction to that was just to ignore all these messages, but it was a lot. It was really hundreds of messages from the Russian side. But then after a few days, I decided to interact with the with a few of them. And it was, in fact, Russian citizens. And I was engaging in conversations, and I understood that, absolutely nothing is possible with them because they have a totally different narrative. And they were, well, still insulting me. And it was a very, very, very basic narrative they had telling that I was a Nazi, I was an American agent. With these conversations I had, well, very basic conversations I had with the Russian, some more citizens, some more soldiers, one thing that I could understand is that actually there is no way to somehow find any common ground in any perspective. We
1: gather that you were actually present shortly before the attack in Krematorsk and narrowly survived. Can you tell us a little bit about that restaurant, why people used to use it and what happened that terrible day?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Kramatorsk is the biggest city that is considered to be relatively safe near the front line. So a lot of People, uh, whether it be uh, foreign journalists, even local journalists, or civilians, or volunteers, or soldiers, of duty soldiers, they used this restaurant as um, a place where they could uh, gather and r- release the stress after intense days at the front, where they could uh, share some experiences, share some thoughts, and obviously have some good, some good foods and some drinks. It was like a gathering hub in Kramatorsk, and the main one, because uh, let's be honest, Kramatorsk is now a city with not a lot of uh, very good options for eating and drinking. And uh, in fact, I I went there maybe 50 or 60 times the past weeks and months. So um, I knew most of the staff working there. And when I got uh, to the restaurant, the manager, Arthur, came to greet me and took my bags and brought me to the so called best table inside the restaurant. And uh, I ordered some foods, uh, some drinks. And uh, 10 minutes before the rocket hit the restaurant, I left the place and I understood quite uh, fast that the restaurant was hit. Went back and what I saw was absolute chaos. Uh, people screaming on the ground, dead people, still people under the rubble. So it was, it was an absolute, um, it it was targeted for sure it was targeted by the russians but no in fact if i stayed 10 minutes longer in a restaurant i think i would be i would be dead by now
0: arno can you tell us a bit about how you you actually go about doing your work you know you're an independent operator Uh, you haven't got a big organization backing you can you give our listeners some idea of of your kind of daily routines and how
2: you actually manage to get around and survive so I've been working in Ukraine now for more than a year, uh, like I mentioned, in every city, uh, almost every city of the country. And I spend a lot of time in every city um, because I think it's important to try to stay in those areas for a long time to understand it better and to meet with civilians and to talk with them. And obviously now in every city I have a small network of fixers, but also just friends, and they can take me and help me work in specific areas so now for instance when I go to cities in Donbass I have a few people that I know I can contact um, I have hosts of apartments that, that can actually host me so that's one of the advantages of working on my own because I can trust my own intuition and um, I'm very flexible so I can take opportunities when they present themselves to me. So, for instance, when I'm at a gas station and I meet some soldiers and they say, Oh, well, let's go, we can take you for one night to our position. Well, it's just me. So, it's very, I'm very flexible and I'm able to, to go to places where bigger teams can actually, or less uh, flexible. And obviously, also, like you mentioned, I'm working as a freelance, so I don't have any security measures to take into account so it's only me and my intuition and where i feel comfortable i know that other journalists working for big companies they have some restrictions they cannot go to certain areas and when they have the authorization to go it's with it comes with a lot of restrictions so um, that's something i don't have uh, again i'm very flexible uh, which is a huge advantage but also comes with a lot of less comfortable things well if something happens to me it's just me and then at the end of the day who will care i don't think uh, a lot of media organizations will care about uh, what's happening to me so um, there has positive and negative sides of doing this work
0: can i just say i I salute your courage and, and what you're doing i think all our listeners will Did you have any kind of background? You you seem to be, if I can put it like this, you know, very kind of unmilitary sort of kind of mindset. Did you surprise yourself at some of the risks that you found yourself taking?
2: No, um, in fact, I think I surprised others, my colleagues, uh, other freelance journalists, because a year ago when the conflict started, well, when the invasion started, I went out of the country because obviously I was scared. But then now... I'm going to places that even the colleagues that I met last year wouldn't go. Because, uh, for instance, if we take uh, Bakhmut, I went to the city, I think, two or three weeks before it was uh, taken by Russia. So I I think I was one of the last freelance journalists who was able to go that close to the city. And actually, I was able to film everything and to make a nice report for the French TV so I think that my colleagues were surprised to see this evolution in one year. But um, I'm not surprised of myself because um, I'm doing this job now since my early 20s. I was 20, 21 years old when I first uh, traveled to um, conflict areas. Uh, it was never a war, but always um, areas that are actually in, where some kind of conflict is happening inside the country. So I'm, I'm talking about countries like Mexico, Nicaragua. Uh, Asian countries, African countries. So I did a lot of work before in those areas so on my own. So um, I think I acquired the experience in other areas that now help me to work and to be comfortable in areas that are actually quite hard.
1: Arno, you seem to have almost a unique perspective uh, among Western journalists in the sense that you've been there for so long and you've been to so many different places. And we're intrigued, of course, at a distance as to what's happening with the counteroffensive there is a certain amount of 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 grumbling should we say in the west that it's not going as quickly as they would have hoped but of course the pushback from the ukrainians is that look we'll do this in our own time can you give us a sense of what the ordinary soldiers are thinking and how much morale is you know is staying high and a determination that they are going to get where they need to go sooner or later
2: so to give a very um, precise example only 2 days ago i was near the city of Yampil. That's a city in Donetsk region in the Donbas, And it's about five kilometers from the front line. And I was joining the medics of the 67 mechanized brigades. And they took me during the whole day to see their base, to see where they live and to see where and how they operate as a medics. And so we went with the ambulances all the way, like I think it was three kilometers from the front line. And basically, that was the area where they are waiting for the wounded to be evacuated from the evacuation staff with armored vehicles. And we were there, and at some point there is one guy soldier. He was wounded by a shell on his leg, and he arrived, and he was completely shocked, uh, scared. He was, I think, he was like almost 30, 35 years old, and I could see that he was. I could see the fear in his eyes, and he was. In, in some kind of shell shock p t s d um, and the only things that he could tell to me was there is dead people everywhere. it's hell, I can see that I could see dead people everywhere um, in English, and I could see the fear in his eyes, then the medics took care of him and they left to the to the field hospital. but I think this very concrete and precise example is absolutely the the, the best way to say that this counter-offensive is going really, really hard. And it's going to be a very fierce battle for Ukrainians. Because like everyone knows now, um, the Russians had the time to organize themselves and to put huge amount of defensive lines. And so to break through these lines will be incredibly hard. And I think somehow Ukrainians do believe, the soldiers do believe that they, they will they will manage to liberate some territories quite soon, but at very, very high price, talking about uh, the Ukrainian soldiers. And I think everyone knows that here, and they're just preparing to lose a lot of men. So to be able to see that and to experience that, I can tell you this counteroffensive will be, uh, will be very bloody.
0: Well, that was fascinating, wasn't it? So join us, uh, please, for part two, to hear the rest of Arnaud Decker's interview.
1: Welcome back. The subject of the big interview this week is Belgian journalist Arno Dedecker. This is what he told us.
0: On the civilian side, Arno, in the time that you've been there, have you noticed any significant shift in the way that the civilian population regard the war? And can you sort of gauge whether they're resolved to to see it through to the end, how that's moved in that time?
2: Yeah. So the mood of the civilians is very different regarding the area where you are. In Kiev. Uh, you can al- almost live a normal life without any anything that remembers you of the war. You can go to cafes, restaurants, and people will just live, uh, even go out at night uh, to bars. So you can basically just live your life without being remembered about this war. But if you go to other areas, I was recently in Kherson in the south and in Zaporizhia, there it's completely different because there is another kind of threat on the civilians over there. They have, well, they had... Uh, the floodings that destroyed everything in the south, in, uh, in Kherson. And now they, they have the threat of a nuclear explosion in Zaporizhia. So the civilians there, actually, it's quite sad to see because they're tired. And they, especially in Kherson, first, the people in Kherson, they had nine months of occupation. After that, after liberation, there was a huge uh, terror campaign with a lot of shells. After that, you had floodings and now you maybe have, uh, soon a nuclear drama. So those people are very tired and almost, um, in Dutch, I would say, um, apathic. I don't know if it does, that's a word in, uh, in English, but they, they are just tired and they have this mood of like, well, we've been through a, a lot. So now whatever will come, we are ready to face it because. What else can we do? So I think depending where you are, you can really feel that people are tired about it.
1: Arna, what are your plans for the immediate future? I mean, you, you've been there over a year. Are you determined to see this through, however it plays out from now on?
2: Well, the, in the last weeks, I had some very, very close calls uh, when I was in Bakhmut in uh, April. And now with the Ria Lounge. I also lost a friend, uh, Armand Soldin, who was um, correspondent for uh, AFP, the French uh, news um, organization, early May. So it was very intense the last weeks. So I think it's not a b- bad idea if I take a short uh, or even longer br- break out of Ukraine. I need it. I need it because I can feel also myself. Uh, I'm, I'm quite tired emotionally. So I think now i will just take some weeks uh, during the summer to take it slow slowly and go on some trips outside of ukraine and then let's see what's uh, what's happening uh, as soon as september
0: yes um, Armin, we we mentioned him uh, last week's podcast he was also a friend of a friend of a great friend of mine in paris uh, who's actually just dedicated his his latest uh, novel to him he seems to have been a much loved much appreciated guy so it's a great tragedy um when i first spoke to you, Arno, I mentioned that your youth and your your kind of um, you know, forward-looking perspective, and one of the things that you're interested in, one of your areas of expertise is, of course, the environment. When you look at Ukraine, what, what is the picture of all this destruction, all this you know massive damage, not just to buildings, but to the actual fabric of, of the land? What does that say to you?
2: Well, it will take years, if not decades, to restore everything and to decontaminate everything. But I think the people here are not worried about the environment and about climate change and and, and those things because it's just not a priority. I mean, Ukraine is worldwide the most mined country in the world. So I think even when the war will be over and Ukraine will be able to regain its territory, the first questions will be very practical questions. Okay, how do we allow our farmers to work again on their farms, on their land. But I think they have other preoccupations than climate change, um, especially that's not talking about the south, southern region uh, where they are basically living of agriculture. And, and that's a huge ecological drama unfolding there. But regarding the other areas of the country, I don't think it's a, it's a major concern here. Because how can you think about biodiversity if I don't know how much of the country is mined and with unexploded uh, missiles still in the backyards of the people. So it's it's like we are back uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago when it was not a priority or a concern whatsoever.
1: I know the last question from me. One of our priorities on this podcast is to keep awareness of what's happening in Ukraine to as wide an audience of the English-speaking world as possible for the obvious reasons that when people lose interest, it could impact badly on Ukraine. To what extent is your reporting, kept interest in Belgium in particular, focused on what's happening?
2: Well, there is a very easy answer to that. Before the war in Ukraine, I was working in Latin and Central America. I was working in African countries in Asia. And I always, as a freelancer, always struggled to sell my work, always. Um, and and when I did, I couldn't make any profits because it was paying so little money that it was almost uh, not possible to live only doing that. And now that's also one of the reasons why I'm here. I'm able to sell a lot of articles and TV reports to Belgium media. And I think that's the best proof of the interests uh, in Ukraine, in Belgium. People want to know what's happening there. And the fact that I'm selling uh, good material is, is I think is a good uh, proof that, that people still want to know what's happening. And honestly, Belgium is a small country. There is not a lot of people doing my work in Belgium. I think we're maybe four, five reporters in Belgium Um, or Belgian reporters covering the front lines. So um, there is a lot of uh, requests from the Belgian uh, newspapers, and I'm very happy about that.
0: Well, you're doing a terrific job, Arno. Keep up the good work. We're full of admiration for you, and thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Well, what a remarkable young man. A credit to his profession when people talk about journalism. You've got to remember there are journalists... Like Arnold, who are risking their lives to tell the story. A very, very impressive guy. I, I was struck by his description of the front line most. That was a very chilling account he gave, wasn't it, Saul? Sort of the being up with the medics right on the front line and seeing this, this wounded soldier being brought in and the fear in his eyes. That really brought home the intensity of the fighting and this, uh, you know, the Im- image of, of bodies everywhere. I think that really brought it home for me just how grim this struggle is.
1: I think uh, his quote from the words of the injured soldier was, Patrick, dead people everywhere. And it's very sobering, isn't it, to think that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is in reality, as Arno says, taking so many casualties. It's a bloody, brutal struggle through strong Russian defensive lines that is taking its toll on a whole generation of young Ukrainians. And how interesting also to hear him say that one of the reasons why he feels so close to the conflict is because it's basically being fought by people like him, young civilians who've actually been forced by the consequences of the Russian invasion to have to try and liberate their country. People like me, as he put it.
0: Yes, indeed. I thought his uh, evaluation of of civilian morale, uh, how their mood has changed or otherwise over the months that he's been there, well, it's, it's pretty much a year and a half now, isn't it? Was Quite telling as well, the further away you are, the more kind of um, likely you, you are not to feel that kind of deadly kind of sense of fatalism, I suppose, that, that people that he witnessed in Kherson and Zaporizhia are living and feeling as a, in their daily lives.
1: And then, of course, Patrick, to hear that that account of how he missed the missile strike by 10 minutes. I mean, how do you get your head around that as a journalist, as a person, when you realise how close you've come to death and how just the fluke of having booked in there and eaten uh, just before the missile strike is anyone's guess? And, of course, we heard, of course, on the podcast how Colin Freeman, another of our contributors – narrowly avoided being caught up because he was called away to, to do some work. So two extraordinary escapes. And my question to you is, how on earth do you as a journalist get your head around the fact that just, you know, your life hangs by a thread in in some moments?
0: Well, I think it's something you don't really think about until afterwards, after the event, you're just sort of lucky to have got away with it. Um, but I think it is something that comes back and literally, in many cases, haunts you in uh, in, in later life. I mean, there've been many cases of colleagues of mine who uh many years after they stopped or sometime after they stopped actually doing front run reporting started to experience the symptoms of PTSD i'm thinking of one friend in particular a bbc guy veteran reporter in the middle east who seemed to be the coolest customer you could imagine you know his his uh, translator was killed standing right next to him uh, he never seemed to uh, lose lose his sort of composure at all and made very light of big dangers. Now, he's told me and other people that he's now accepting that he's been suffering from PTSD for a long time. So it's a, something that uh, really you don't understand what's happened to you until quite a long time after the event in many cases.
1: No, and the la- lastly, you know, for me, the sobering reality of hearing the Russian response, which we're not surprised about at all, to the targeting of that cafe. I mean, first of all, he makes it pretty clear that it was a deliberate targeting of what was in effect a civilian location. Yes, of course, there were some off-duty soldiers there. But the way the Russians then took advantage of the fact that he'd posted some pictures of the wounded uh, Ukrainian soldiers, and took advantage of that to say, no, actually, it was a military target It's just so typical. And then moving on from that, the interaction he'd had with them, you know, is there any way of getting any common ground, any way of talking some sense into these Russians? Unfortunately, not, in his view, there was, you know, a firm fixed line that they had in their heads, and they weren't moving from it.
0: Yes, that's right. I think the truth is that uh, the Russian people have had uh, 100 years of, of being fed a false narrative. And it will take a long, long time, several generations, perhaps before that sort of mindset has any kind of dents put in, in it by exposure to the truth. But you know, good for him for actually, instead of just ignoring uh, these abusive messages, actually trying to engage with the people who were sending them, unfortunately, to no effect.
1: All right. I think that's all we have time for today. Uh, Do join us on Friday for our usual uh, roundup of the news. And we'll be responding, of course, to listeners' questions. Goodbye.